A busy old day on the radio and plenty to catch up on. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. It's all about your stance and where your feet will be. If you're right-handed, your left leg and your left hand are forward. Using your left hand as your jab hand. Your left hand is your good hand, but your right hand is your great hand. I remember one day I went around to this the zoology park uh, of, the, of the, the building and there was a friend of mine there and her research was getting a badger poo and opening it up and to see what the badger had eaten. And this is something she did for an entire year. And I remember looking at her going, is this my life? If I want a moment of reflection, I go to the back, back garden, I'll listen to the bird. I don't need the national broadcaster to deliver that mm. to me. And we'll start with the Ray Darcy show and Olympic boxing medalist Kelly Harrington was in studio with writer Roddy Doyle to talk about her autobiography titled Kelly. Right, we have Olympic gold medalist Kelly Harrington. Good afternoon, Kelly. Good afternoon. And uh, <laughs> Booker Prize winning author Roddy Doyle. Hello. Hello. Uh, congratulations to you both. Thank you. Yes. Thanks very much. Now, before we start, it's a team effort, but it's Kelly's book. Is yes. That, is that the way it is? That's the way I see it. Yeah, right. it is. No, it's not only the way I see it. That is what it is. <laughs> it's Kelly's book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, when you got the call... How did you feel? Kelly texted me. So, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting it because I'd never met her before. <laughs> and it was a text, <laughs> you know. And what did I feel? Curious. Yeah, curious, I suppose. I'd watched the final of the Olympics and I thought it was brilliant she'd won. But to be honest, when I was watching it and the commentator was saying, you know, it looks like she'd won, I didn't know why. And I was delighted that she did. But I knew so little about boxing that I didn't realise why she'd won, just mm. happy that she had won. Uh, but then, I, you know, I heard an interview and I thought, yeah, she sounds great. You know, she's and there's a great story. There's probably a great story there. So I was curious just to know um, if there was a book there, you know, because she is very young. And I know sp- sporting life is measured differently to, you know, most people retire, you know, in their 60s, whereas a, an athlete has to start thinking about retirement when they're Kelly's age. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Reddy. Thanks very much. <laughs> so yeah, I was intrigued by it and curious to know whether there was anything there that I would be interested in. So yeah, I was very happy to meet her. Have you had meetings like this before where you've had to say no? Yes. Right. Not with them. Um, not, not, not in this particular type of work. Yeah, but I've had meetings where work has been suggested yes. and I've gone away and thought about it and said no. Right. Yeah. Okay. And did you feel before you met Kelly that it's important that you like her or is that important at all? It's not vital. It's not important, I would imagine. I I did a similar job with Roy Keane and I liked Roy and I think that he liked me as well. We had a good time together while we were doing it, so it helps. But I'd imagine you could do a perfectly competent job without being particularly warm towards somebody as (laughs) long as you can get them talking. And... uh, but I did like her the minute I met her. Like she's, uh, you'd want to be working hard not to like Kelly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I luckily, I wasn't working hard. <laughs> but I suppose I was thinking of it more professionally. I was thinking, you know, anybody who reads the book, bar maybe three people in the country, know that Kelly won an Olympic gold medal. Mm. So where's the story? Uh-huh. You know, and that's when I, I, I asked a few things and I thought, oh, well, it's not going to be just the story. It's going to be how the story is told. And then I had complete confidence that yeah. Kelly would tell the story in her own kind of unique way, great flow of language, you know. Because Kelly, there, there's it's like Rocky, and there's one particular scene in the book, and we're we're going to jump around here, but there's one particular scene in the book, and I actually circled and went Rocky, 
and that's, 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 where he, that's where you're working in St. Vincent Psychiatric Hospital and you're training, I can't remember for what, but you're so busy with everything that one of your coaches comes at lunchtime with pads. And does the pads on does the, the break. Pa- at the, on the break. Yeah. Um, I suppose, like, if you were from the outside of the hospital, it wouldn't look so normal, but everybody on the inside of the hospital was was kind of used to it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Not anyway. so you were in, you in, uni- you in your uniform. And you went to a room and, and then... Ah, no, the, I got changed. Oh, got changed. I got right, changed. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in the no, movie no. version. In, in the, the movie, movie version, I'll be in my uniform and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I just got changed. And uh, like, I remember one time we would have been in the in the room where where the, others, the other staff were actually having their breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> and we're there doing pads. And everyone was just looking on, you know, while we're doing pads. But to us, it's just normal. Yeah, you know, we're just getting just in normal. and getting it done. Yeah, yeah. And... I mean, we didn't want to miss an opportunity either. Like, and the lunch go. break Brilliant. is like Brilliant. you get a, a good lunch break. So, I mean, yeah. you could get a good session in there. So, here, like, this is another amazing thing that's happened to you, Kelly Harrington. A book with your photograph on the cover, although I don't have the. This is without the dust jacket, but there is a picture of you on the cover, yeah. Yeah. How it, was the launch? It, it, it was great, you know. It's, it's, it's an incredible achievement, to be honest. I, I was. I was driving into work there the other day and I'm like, I just, I'm a very, very emotional person and I'll cry over the slightest thing, you know, but I'm driving in and I'm thinking like, I have like, I've just told my life story now. It's been, it's on paper, it's in a book, you know, and that is my life story and that's the way I want it to be told and that's the way I want people to, to know. Everything in that is what I want people to know, you know, and it is what has made me who I am today. It has given me strength, resilience, a bounce back effect, and you know, like, and I've I've had yeah. more hits than I don't know than 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 Rocky. And Ray asked Kelly about some of the things she wrote about from her childhood and where she grew up. It was tough enough, wasn't it, growing up where you grew up? Yeah, it was. It was tough enough, like. Um, in a sense, like that, you could go down any road. Any road is there to go down, and so that—that's the tough part—is to to not go down that road. And if you are going down that road, then to try and get off it, you know. Yeah. But thankfully, thankfully, uh, there was people always around, like and people seeing without boxing, just people seeing the person that I was, and I was a like. I had a good character. I was a, a good child. Apart from all the stuff that I was doing, you could see behind that, you know, mm. and 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 I'm blessed for that. Because, because in the book, it's laid out. You know, you're you're robbing from pennies and you're robbing here, there, and everywhere. But but yet your your goodness shone through. <laughs> that, that's not all that, robbers are bad, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, well, that, and did, what, was that was that exciting for you, Roddy? Or? What was what exciting? The, the, the fact that you know she was Kelly was free about admitting to Robin stuff and oh well the book wasn't going to happen if uh, but she was saying uh, yeah yeah there was um, uh, there's a story there like you, you know yeah, it's when part I was of the story yeah, you know yeah. and it, you know Kelly is quite strong on the fact that boxing saved her to a degree mm. you know and um, you know so you need to know from what yes. And I mean, there are worse 
things to do than shoplift, really. I mean, I'm not I'm not advocating. No. <laughs> but there are, there are worse things. There are a lot yes, worse yes, things. Yes, and yes. actually, there are worse things in there. There, it's there well, are yes. more scary from a, the point of view of any reader or a parent. You know, you're reading the early chapters and you're wondering, oh, if you didn't know yes. how it's going to end, you'd be a bit worried. So there was more going on than just the shoplift. Yes. But I, there's uh, like the, the thing about it is like if there's any young children who is able able to read and is reading the book they might be heading down that pathway mm. and they'll be able to read it and say like like there's so many people out there who can they can associate with the book you know like with what I've with what I went through and they can say well if she can do it I can do it mm. there's so many people who have read the book and who have said like for instance there's a bit in the book where I'm speaking about the flats and we're sitting on the wall and there's three exits you know like to get in and out of flats and like so many people have said to me that was that was like when I was younger as well that was the same thing like we had the same kind of thing like you know to get away from the guards uh, to get away from anybody who's chasing you from the guards or anybody like you know but the same like so people are like yeah they're your your ma said to you that you were hanging out with the the wrong crowd and you said to her there is no wrong crowd I I am the you know what I mean you were the crowd I am the crowd like you know and I knew that and I loved my friends and I still do love them. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I, I that really got under my skin when my ma would say that because I always knew like, no, I I literally do what I want to do and nobody's still still to this day, nobody tells me what to do, you know. And Oh, you're very much your own person. <laughs> I'm very much my own person. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Kelly and Roddy spoke about the writing process. The writing is, is amazing, obviously. Well, I, I, remember I very deliberately stayed away from, say, watching fights I hadn't seen. Do you, no, do, you, do you want to read her? You, you, yeah, well, there it is. It's there because well, I, I want to read, read a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a duet. Um, so it was up to Kelly to describe, to do all the descriptions. Yeah. So every word is hers. Yeah, you know? right. And the passage, the particular passage she's going to read, it was brilliant because I asked her, she said, oh, I just did the basics. And I said, look, I haven't a clue. What are the basics? Yeah. And she started talking and then she got up out of her seat and started wandering around the room doing the actions, <laughs> yeah. you know. So I was going home that day. I lived quite close to where um, uh, Kelly's going to be living. And um, I was quite elated, you know, because I thought there's definitely a book here because, you know, the way she described yeah. what she does. And when it came to boxing, it was just... Uh, it was brilliant. There's a beautiful to rhythm to this, isn't there? There is, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's part Kelly, part me, yeah, yeah. back to Kelly, yes, back yeah. to me. Sparring. The two of us almost sparring, <laughs> yeah, 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 without the gloves, yeah. without, <laughs> without the terror. It's a, it's a tongue twister as well. In fairness, because I was like, wait, hold on, hold on, ready, wait, wait, wait. I remember when we were going through it because I did have to keep getting up on my seat to go. However, over. Pr- proofreading it, she had to get up again and start <laughs> right. just to remind herself. Right. Um, I'll read it here and I probably will get tongue twisted again so uh, bear with me right Um, so it's all about your stance and where your feet should be if you're right handed your left leg and your left hand are forward using your left hand as your jab hand your left hand is your good hand but your right hand is your great hand you lead with your left you're keeping the other fighter at bay keeping them away from you but you're setting them up for the big one the right one your hips are slightly turned, so you're not square onto your opponent. Being side on makes it a lot harder for your opponent to land shots. Being square on, you're a bigger target and your balance isn't great. Side on, the heel of the back foot comes up just slightly off the ground. You're nice and light on your feet. Your knees are slightly bent and your shoulders are dropped and relaxed. Your elbows stay in, your hands stay closed, in a fist, 
your thumbs come across your knuckles, your chin stays down, you still stay nice and relaxed, moving forward, moving back, moving forward, moving back, then moving side to side, how you stand and how you keep your shape. Your right hand should be at your side of your chin and your lead hand should be up, just underneath your eye line. Brilliant. There you go. There are people falling over in the kitchens. <laughs> Kelly Harrington and Roddy Doyle from the Ray Darcy Show. And now a fascinating conversation about the Irish need to own land or a home. Is it Cromwellian, an echo of the famine, or something more recent? Philip Badger Hayes was talking to Dr. Lorcan Sir, Senior Lecturer in Housing at TU Dublin. Why did we become a nation of homeowners rather than renters? Where did we take a different path to so many of our nearest neighbours? Some say it was Cromwell, others say the famine. But my next guest argues that it was in fact the influence of the Catholic Church that had an undue influence on the shape of today's property markets. Joining me in studio, Dr. Lorcan Sir, Senior Lecturer in Housing at TU Dublin. Very good morning to you. Morning, Philip. Set out your stall there. Yeah, it's very interesting. The going back, I don't go back as far as Cromwell, or, but the famine. Yeah, in, indeed, you can. Republicanism. So in the 1800s, you find republicanism and the republican movement putting the ownership of land front and central to its its arguments and its its ideology. And then when you get kind of post colonial, when you when you get into the area of when the when the British are moving out, there's a whole load of literature uh, for from loads of post colonial countries, uh, including and Ireland would be one around the importance of home ownership to things like safety and security but also to things like shame right now you're talking to a first year UCD psychology dropout here so I'm not going to go into too much of the psychology of this but you're looking at things like national shame about not owning your own land but also increasingly then in later decades around personal shame about not being able you know to, to own your own property and, and all the kind of the baggage that that brings with it and in 1922 then when the, when the, the British left you have a, a huge amount of influence over housing policy from the church and they had a preference for certain things, including the design of housing estates. So people who live in, say, places like Kimmage or Cabra will know the estates, particularly if you look, uh, take a helicopter view and you have the school in the middle, or you'll have the church in the centre and you'll have a boys and girls primary school next door to the church so the priest can have easy access in to make sure that religion was being taught. You'll have roads then radiating from the church and the school. Each of the houses then will have three bedrooms because you couldn't have boys and girls sharing a room. And you'll have the road names, uh, either Saints or rural locations, and you'll have front and back gardens. That was to instill rural values. In other words, people will grow vegetables. But the most important thing that the church uh, wanted in, in housing was home ownership. They didn't like the idea of flats, um, particularly in the 1930s, because flats bred. Can, were, were much easier uh, vectors for social unrest. I remember 1913, 1916, 1921, we had a lot of trained people, soldiers and things back uh, from wars and things. So the church didn't like that. Actually, interesting, in the 1930s, the Nazis also didn't like flats. They wanted everybody to have their own individual house as well. Because what you have um, is what the engineers called in 1931 the, the moral dangers of the common stairwell. If you've ever been to tenements in Edinburgh, Glasgow, you know, three or four doors or flats on the one stairwell, it's very easy for social unrest to spread in these in these areas and it's much better for people to have their own houses and you okay. can kind of contain people. Okay, I understand all of that, but explain why is it that you think that the Catholic Church was shaping this housing market rather than just following popular will and what it was that people want? That, that entirely understandable desire to move away from tenement living to owning your own house in your own little plot of a garden. Yeah, but what, I, the, the, what, what, what I'm picking up from you there is that it was about the quality of housing uh, and actually 
actually what it is, is about breeding social conservatism. We know from uh, studies in loads of countries that homeowners are much more socially conservative than renters, for example. And you see it even even recently. In, I was in Brendan O'Connor uh, in here a few weeks ago looking at a, a Business Post Ipsos survey and looking at renters and owners. And the homeowners were much more conservative in how they were going to vote compared to people who rent. And it's always been the case. And the, the church knew well that that they didn't want the rise of socialism in, the, in the, somewhere like Ireland. So if you promote home ownership, what you're essentially promoting is social conservatism and a much more stable and steady, in their view, um, society. Really? Okay. But to what extent can the Catholic Church have been conducting their own Ipsos MRPI polling uh, back then? How did they know this? And and is there actual written expression of this as a policy that has been influenced by yeah, the Church? Nearly every housing policy up until the 1990s uh, referred to home ownership as the preferred tenure in inverted commas. So the all this was, home ownership was front and centre in all this. We see then when, when for example, Archbishop, Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, he became the primate of Ireland I think in, in 1940 and the Archbishop of Dublin in 1940 and what happened then was that Dublin Corporation at the time when they were you know designing housing estates like Marino and Cabra and, and Cabra West and all those places Kimmage they had to send all the designs over to the Red House to the Archbishop and he would cast his given an eye over them and send them back sometimes up to 20 times with his suggestions for um, improvements. And Philip asked Lorcan what the church wanted in the plans. Yeah, no, but the church at the centre put the church at the front of people's, you know, every road that you went down, you were looking at the church. The vista at the end of every, nearly every road was one of the church. And then having the priest next door to the school also was very important for them. And I think everything that, that, that they were acquired from the number of bedrooms to the front and back garden to the saints' names on the roads or the rural uh, names on the roads, like places with no connection to Dublin, you know, like Eris Road, and like Eris is somewhere off Mayo, you know, but it's in the heart of Cabra. Um, all those kind of things instilled in people uh, very much the, the fact that the church was the power. It's also, you know, the, the other thing you have to look at is that church ideology, Catholic ideology is very much that you don't turn to the state for help. You turn to Mother Church or you turn to your family for help. Whereas you go to some of the Central Eastern European countries, of course you turn to the state uh, to help. The state was the first provider of, because the church wasn't as powerful or wasn't as okay. prominent in those countries. And how differently might Herbert Sims have done things if he hadn't had to run everything past John Charles McQuaid? Yeah, I think Herbert Sims was a really good, uh, he was an English architect who, who, who spent some time in India. I think we would have had a, a far more flats for example. We've had a greater proportion of our housing stock in the city centre would have been flats and he was a brilliant designer of really really nice flats, you know, kind of Bauhaus ones. You still see them in Greek Street and the back of Henrietta Street there in Dublin uh, and around the country. And he was he was a brilliant designer. And flats, flats for families, not just yeah, flat for single occupants. No, no, in those days flats were for families. We've changed now, obviously. Um, but I think we would have seen a greater proliferation. Like, I know we have a lot of flats around, but actually it's nothing in comparison to when you look at, you know, some of the Germanic or the Central and Eastern European countries. And the church didn't want them, so therefore they weren't going to happen. And the same, you know, in 1930s Germany. It, it's really interesting, though, isn't it, when you compare what uh, the Soviets were doing all across Eastern Europe, where they had absolutely no problem whatsoever about the idea of communal living. You look at those Panalax flats all around uh, the Czech Republic around yeah, Slovakia, Hungary, Hungary yeah. and, and so on. What was it that the Catholic Church saw different in the idea of so many people living in the same place as being a problem? Well, it, partly it was the, the fear of spread of sedition, for example, the idea that unrest, and remember a lot of the social unrest in Dublin in the 1910s and 20s was A, around working conditions, but B, around housing conditions, because housing conditions were appalling, particularly in Dublin city centre and in many, you know, some of the other cities around the country as well. Um, so so a lot, they were terrified of social unrest. Um, and the idea, having, when you have a lot of people living together in 
one building as in some of those kind of you know blocks of flats the you know unrest can can very easily spread from you know all, all it takes are one or two sparks one or two people who are unhappy and it spreads throughout the building very quickly and they knew this and they were terrified of this did the Catholic Church do us a big favour here though because if uh, a rental heavy model is undesirable because people are going to be paying 2,500, 3,000 euro a month in retirement if they are renters. Is the fact that so many people are homeowners in this country, thanks to the Catholic Church, something that we have to say thank you very much, John Charles McQuaid, for? Well, yeah, the idea when John Charles McQuaid and the church were promoting this kind of this, this policy, rents weren't two and a half thousand a month or anywhere near the proportion. No, of I, your, I'm not of saying that they knew what they were doing, but it's something <laughs> that we inadvertently have to say, yes, that was actually a social good that came out of that. OK, I think ultimately now we have a system that is based on homeownership, without a doubt, and that suits an awful lot of people. It's not ideal because there are many downsides to homeownership as well. A, Partly, for example, the idea that it ties people down. In other words, your labour force is much less mobile if everybody has a mortgage. You can't move hither and thither to follow employment. But, you know, there's lots of advantages to it as well. So you could make the case like you are that the church has done us a service and that we have now a system based on, on home ownership. And it does suit a lot of people. The way we have done it, though, there's lots of countries who, who you know whose housing preferences are, are for home ownership, but they haven't necessarily done it in the way that we have. Um, so, yes, you could argue that. Yeah. There are other forces at work now though Obviously. in the modern era and yep. there's home ownership is on the decline. How much so? Yeah, home ownership is very much uh, under threat. At the last uh, census in, in 2016, Philip, so Ireland's home, ownership, Ireland's home ownership was 67.6%, so just about two thirds of the population were homeowners. That's down from over 80% in the early 90s. And actually, wow. we're, we're below the European average. You know, we think everybody in Europe uh, are, are, are all renters. They're not. About 70% of people in, across the EU uh, are homeowners. Owners. The US is 65%, the UK is 63%. So we're, we are on the decline and on the decline quite rapidly. And there's a big urban-rural divide in that. Over 80% of people in rural areas are homeowners and like less than 60% in, in okay. urban areas. Dr Lorcan Sir from Today with Philip Edger Hayes. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, the rise in violence rather than civil discourse. So where is all the rage coming from? Um, you saw what happened with Nancy Pelosi's husband, didn't you, in America last week where somebody got into the house and echoing that uh, the, 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 the hunt for Nancy Pelosi in the January 6th attacks where they came in and go, Nancy, where are you? Uh, very creepy and terrifying, sort of, as I say, bunch of people trying to track her down and get her uh, in between trying to hang Mike Pence. But this man came in looking for where was Nancy, he says to her husband, who's, I think, 82 years old. And an exchange followed and there was hammer blows to his head. And he was he's OK, but he was hospitalized, obviously. And it's just got this conversation going in America. When did the violence I mean, start? And it goes right back. They started talking about, obviously, the assassination of Lincoln and Kennedy and assassination attempts on the likes of Reagan and so on. But just the preponderance of violence in among against public officials is really worrying, and this is a hate crime, and it's 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 back to what we've been talking about for the last three years, on this program as well about civil discourse, and the lack of it. I saw Obama, former President Obama, at a speech the other night, and there was a heckler, and he said he was saying to the heckler, he said, "This isn't going to work, you roaring at me and me roaring at you. It's not the answer." And he's so right. It it, it it's. We've got to talk to and with each other rather than just shouting, roaring and in this case, 
putting a hammer to the head of the husband of the of the woman you were searching for with cable ties in your pocket. What the hell is going on? And I was listening to Morning Joe, which is one of my favorite TV programs in American TV, and they do a podcast as well of their TV show. Uh, so I was, um, you can listen to it because it's it's, it's as effective in an audio in audio way as it is in video way. And they played this clip. Um, this is a shortened version of it. Just going. So where does all this come from? And the suggestion is that Donald Trump, since he came to office, has not helped matters in his utterances um, down through the various years of of him giving speeches and uh, when it comes to the suggestion that violence is the answer. Maybe he should have been roughed up because it was absolutely disgusting what he was doing. So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of him, would you? Seriously. Okay? Just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise. I promise. We're not allowed to punch back anymore. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. We having a good time? USA, USA. USA, USA, USA. All right, yeah, get him out. Try not to hurt him. Yeah, that's, that is, I think, <laughs> and that's the shortened version of it. I, I had another 20 seconds of that and uh, just thought there's only so much, but there you are. Uh, that's um, all uh, leading up to the midterms next week, which are intriguing. From the Ryan Tuberty show, then later, Philip Boucher Hayes was also talking about the rise of rage with Ian Robertson, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Trinity College. Listen to this for a troubling quote. We had a period of time where people were on the streets applauding our staff. Now we see them being exposed on a regular basis to verbal abuse. And those are the words of Professor Janice Walsh, consultant medical oncologist at St. Vincent's University Hospital, speaking on this programme last month about the rising anger directed at healthcare workers. It's not just in hospitals, though. We can see it on the roads, in restaurants, on the pitch too, if your correspondence with us is anything to go by. Why, though, are we witnessing this rising rage? Joining me in studio to talk more about it is Ian Robertson, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Trinity College and the author of How Confidence Works. Good morning to you, Ian. Morning, Philip. Do you think that there's something left over, a hangover, something residual from the pandemic here? There could be. I th- I think. Th- th- well, let me get to that. I think. I think the main thing is how we feel. Our emotions are largely determined by the thoughts we have, by what we think, and we're we're surrounded now because of fashions and social media, etc., with conspiracy theories, for example, and there's a, a huge set of beliefs about there about people doing bad things to us. And that, if you believe these things, you will feel angry. So there's that general context of a kind of blame, a kind of blame culture, a kind of people are doing, if, if, if something's going wrong in my life, it must be someone's fault. So that, that is in the kind of cultural airwaves just now. And uh, the other thing is, of course, we, we know that during COVID, there was a big rise in anxiety. Mm particularly among younger people and people who didn't weren't privileged to have nice bigger houses like I did, you know, were stuck together. We, we know that marital breakdown rates went up during COVID. So there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of 
bad emotions. And I'm speculating here, but I'm guessing that there is only really a hair's breadth between anxiety and anger, really, as human emotions. Well, actually, uh, there's... Physiologically, it's almost impossible to tell the difference if you really? put sensors. <laughs> if you look at how the body is responding to these two emotions, uh, your beating heart, your tense stomach, your clenching your muscles, dry mouth. And so as far as the body is concerned and the brain is concerned, these are just your body preparing for action. And you don't care whether that action's running away or punching someone or indeed celebrating a great win, for instance, for example. So they only become a per- crystallized into a particular emotion when we put a label on them by the context. And so uh, it's very easy in a culture where there's a lot of anxiety, partly because of COVID, but for other reasons as well, you know, particularly in young adolescents, the, the comparison, comparison culture and social media always being made to feel as if you're wanting compared to some celebrity. So there's a lot of anxiety about. There's a lot of anger because of, you know, the, the, the culture of, of conspiracy theories and blame culture, people saying things like Ireland is a failed state. I mean, that, that's a terrible thing to say. I mean, not only is it ridiculous, but it makes people feel anxious and angry. And then, so so the trouble is then, if anger is not focused with a particular target, someone someone you're angry at, with a particular request of that person or group, what you want them to do, it, it becomes mixed up with anxiety. And so when you're anxious, mm. you're angry. And when you're angry, you're anxious. Exactly. I was going to say that anxiety leads or breeds anger, but then the experience of encountering somebody who is angry will in turn breed anxiety in you as a consequence. Absolutely. It will make you anxious, but then there's a tendency to respond to anger Mm. as well um, by reciprocating. Because, I mean, human emotions and human thoughts are incredibly transmissible. (laughs) And the, 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 the wonder is of modern communications is we can transmit, uh, get people get an entire population wearing masks in a period of two weeks, getting an entire population staying indoors and not going more than two kilometres. I mean, that, what, what? that could never have happened in medieval times. So we can do wonderful things with, with, with this communication, but we can also spread emotions that, that are, are not healthy for, for us or for society. So what should we be doing when we feel anger? The next time I am angered by something that what I need to be saying is stop, pause, hold on a second, Philip, ask yourself the question, how much of this is down to the fact that I am anxious about something else or I am anxious about my relationship with this person and that I need to say, try and separate that anxiety from whether what they said was objectively offensive or calculated to put me down or whatever. Spot on, spot on. I wish I could do that myself. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, Professor. Because <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I'm a hot-tempered guy, and I not off, not you know, many times in my life I've said or done things that I've regretted because of, of of that red mist, and and yes, often. But I think maybe men more than women uh, would would tend to channel their anxiety into into anger because of the, the culture of maleness, etc. And um, that's the great thing about uh, practices such as yoga and mindfulness, uh, Philip, because what they do is they teach you that you are not your emotions. 
They teach you that you are not your thoughts. They teach you the human brain has this remarkable capacity to kind of think about itself thinking, watch itself watching, mm. <laughs> watch itself experiencing. And sometimes just taking that little, creating that little gap, just learning the ha a different habit, a new habit, which is creating a five-second gap between that rising anger you feel because of what that person's just said and your response. Yeah. And if It's it, the oldest advice ever, it count is. to ten. I, I once had a, a traumatic brain injury. One of the big problems that can arise in traumatic brain injury is temper outbursts from people because that ability of the frontal lobes to inhibit is reduced. And I remember once this this chap of you know, his 40s with a family and his marriage was on the brink of breaking up because he was losing control of his, his emotions. And, and I tried to teach him the things you've just said, Philip, about gaining control, creating that gap between your response. Nothing worked. And eventually one day he came back to me and said, I've sorted it. I've sorted it. I said, oh, what did you do? He said, I started counting to 10. <laughs> Whenever I felt that anger, I didn't teach him that. But he, that ancient practice, just counting to 10 in your own mind, to just even, it's amazing how little time it takes between the stimulus, the, the, then creating the thoughts. And these, you're right, in these kind of red mist times, it's, all, it's habitual, instantaneous. But there is a context, a background. If you feel life is not fair, for instance, and that's the, the, the belief that life is not fair is a, is a thought that creates a, a chronic okay. anger. Ian Robertson, Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Trinity College from today with Philip Boucher Hayes. And on the live line in the afternoon, the issue that dominated was the decision by the Lord Mayor of Dublin to replace the live crib outside the mansion house. Rose called Joe. Rose, this the decision of the Lord Mayor of Dublin to, which is the prerogative of the Lord Mayor of Dublin, regardless of who it is, that they are not going to have animals or a crib outside the mansion house this Christmas. Rose, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. And your your reaction to this? Oh, I'm devastated. Uh, it's tradition for us to travel up to the city on the 8th of December and go to the crib at the mansion house. And what do you like about the crib? What's so... Oh, it's, it's, so, uh, it's so wonderful to see the animals in the setting with the straw and uh, watch the children's reaction. It's unique. And the little choir of angels from the local school make the day. Um, and the, the reason that has been given by the Lord Mayor that she wants to update it, or sorry, go back, to, there's going to be a sleigh, there's going to be a post box, there's going to be, uh, it's going to be more interactive. But your Joe, that's all covered in And more, post sorry, in fairness, said more inclusive. Oh, no, I don't think it's, there's already, uh, oh, well, always in the Jervis Street Centre, um, a big display for Christmas. And then you have the post box at the GPO. And that's that's where most children post their letters. Yeah, well, post boxes are everywhere. They can post the boxes. Post boxes aren't anywhere. Um, do you, but Rose, what about the whole uh, the whole issue of animals being in one spot all day? Oh, 
but sure, they've been doing doing that for 27 years and we must continue to support that farmer that supplies the animals. Well, that's Rose and Frank called Joe. The first I heard of this was in the Irish Independent either Friday or Saturday morning. Okay. And I never heard of this protocol committee. The mayor seems to have proposed it and it was passed by the other members of this protocol committee. Mm-hmm. By the way, we've asked the Lord Mayor to come on the programme, but she's unavailable. Um, go ahead anyway. You go through the process then as you understand it. Um, well, it was nobody was consulted about this in terms of the public. What did the public think about it? The fact that it's, it's been going on since the mid-90s. And really, Joe, what I'm asking about is the boys and girls, the children of Ireland, the grandparents and parents in generations who've come over to see the crib. Uh, the crib is a wonderful uh, spectacle of peace and goodwill and the whole spirit of Christmas. And, then and the crib was yeah. always with the animals. Mm. And mm. to have live animals there, the uh, the donkey, the goats, the sheep or whatever they have there. Mm. And the children, their eyes just jump out looking at the animals there and the whole interaction of the children with the farmer and what have you and and it's wonderful, particularly for children in the city who probably wouldn't have access to animals like that from the country. And um, regarding the animals' uh, welfare, generally this time of the year, animals would be kept indoors because of the weather, the terrible rain and what mm-hmm. have you. So they're over there, they're nice and cosy, they have water, they have hay, and they're taken home every evening and then brought back the next day. And they're very, very well looked after. So there's no question of the the uh, the health or welfare of the animals. Well, I, again, again, I'm quoting from Morning Ireland, where um, the word peace and goodwill goodwill was used, and the representative of the Labour Party said, "Well, it hasn't been it hasn't been much peace and goodwill shown towards the Lord Mayor, Miss Conroy, for making this decision." Well, the fact that the thing was arbitrarily made by the Lord Mayor. Yeah, but that's that's any Lord Mayor could have made the decision. That's apparently it's one of the things they can decide. Like they live in a mansion house. The mansion house for the year is their house, and they can decide what's going to be in front of it. Well, absolutely true, Joe. I've no, I've no problem. I've no problem with that. But we have a situation where the Lord Mayor is elected for one year, and here we have every single Lord Mayor of every religion, nationality, men and women, and every mm. one of them were delighted. Delighted to have the crib outside the mansion house for the last since nineteen ninety four, I think, with no problem whatsoever. Yeah, but as one as one another Claire another uh, Green councillor, city councillor, tweeted at the weekend. She was basically making the point. That, well, the Lord he said next year a Fianna Fáil Lord Mayor, and she mentioned the Fine Gael Lord Mayor. Um, if they can bring back dancing monkeys and put a real baby in the live crib or whatever. Uh, they think defines Christmas. Joe, it's a wonderful. I don't know where dan- I don't know where dancing monkeys come into Christmas, but anyway, <laughs> Joe, it's a wonderful tradition of Christmas for people from all over Ireland to come to Dublin during the whole Christmas period. Well, that's Frank there. Then Gary called Joe. He supports the Lord Mayor's decision. Um, yeah, I mean, this is not anti. Catholic and it's not anti-Christian, but this is a very different state to the state it was um, 10, 20, 30 years, the one that you and I grew up in, Joe. And 
I think the census figures will reveal that. And, you know, we need, rather than anti-Catholic or anti-Christian, it's pro-diversity, pro-inclusion. And, you know, people talk about secularism and inclusion and diversity as though they were bad words. Um, And I would liken this, and I've I've campaigned for Mm -hmm. a while, uh, to the Angelus and RTE. Um, It's it's a representation. um, uh, It's the the Angelus is an anthem of the Catholic Church and the the Christian philosophy. The crib is a commemoration of the birth of of Christ. It's, It's Christian, it's Catholic. And this state... If it's going to put public monuments or public mm-hmm. displays uh, by the Lord Mayor of of, uh, of the capital, uh, they need to be something that gives a nice message to everybody at this time of year, not just a, a message to others. I, mm-hmm. I worked with Concern once upon a time. I lived in Bangladesh, very, very Muslim country. Yeah. And you felt it. You felt it as a, as a, as a non-Muslim from a different country. And, you know, we have, you know, again, Ireland is so, so different. Um, and if, if there are, you know, again, back to the Angelus, how, does, how do the Muslims, non-believers, uh, people of, of all faiths and nuns, feel when the national broadcaster broadcasts mm-hmm. the Angelus twice a day? Um, it, it, it is not representative, in my view. Well, is it not, um, fair, is it not fair to say now, Gary, even the visuals around the Angelus at the six o'clock, on television, the the visuals around the Angelus. The Angelus has now been, um, mm. I can't say rebranded as a as a minute of re- reflection. Yeah, um, uh, but it is still it is still an association. Its origins are mm-hmm. Catholic and Christian, and it, its its origins are therefore and some of the images are. And, but, but but the broadcasting of the Angelus mm-hmm. is a very Irish thing. It doesn't happen in other Catholic countries, and, uh, so to speak. No, but it's very Irish and it's very Catholic. And some of the imagery is of crucifix and some of the imagery... But is that not gone? There's no imagery of crucifixes anymore in the... No, but the association association is still there. And, I mean, if if people want... Again, George, it's... In my my view, it's not the role of the national broadcaster to, to deliver... Uh, a moment of reflection. If I want a moment of reflection, I go to the back, back garden. I listen to the birds. Okay. I look at the the, the the leaves, the beautiful leaves changing, and the, the buds hiding for for next year. I don't need the national broadcaster to deliver that mm. to me. That's Gary on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Philip Edger Hayes climate change and unseasonably warm weather. There's concern amongst climate experts and environmentalists following unseasonable high temperatures in some parts of Spain and southern France with the mercury hitting 30 degrees in the end of October. The mercury has also been rising well above the norm across vast swathes of Europe from Spain to as far north as Sweden. In a moment I'm going to be speaking uh, to Professor Pateri Talas, Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organisation and Professor John Sweeney, climatologist and Emeritus Professor at Maynooth University. But first, I'm joined on the line from Madrid by freelance journalist Guy Hedgeco. Guy, what, it's like, what is it like in Spain today? Well, today, actually, we've had a, a slightly cooler front has moved in, which is rather refreshing. Um, so temperatures have dropped slightly. Um, there's even been a bit of rain where I am, which is in the, in the centre of the country, in the Madrid region. Um, but, you know, that has been refreshing after the extremely high or relatively high temperatures we've been having um, really for the last month, temperatures which were seemed like a, a continuation 
of the summer, really. Um, October was much warmer than normal. And we're told that it was probably the warmest October on record. So much so that a new word has been coined in Spain to describe this new season. Yes, that's right. Uh, Spaniards are very good at creating these hybrid words, particularly when it comes to the weather. So we have uh, verano, which is a summer, and otoño, which is autumn, have been mixed together to make veronio, um, so a mixture of summer and autumn. And that really reflects this idea that uh, people increasingly have in Spain that the autumn is is really disappearing in a way because the summer just seems to continue on and on and on. And that's because the temperatures, not just this year, but we the temperatures that we frequently have been starting to see in September and October um, don't resemble autumn-like temperatures at all. They're more like the te- kind of temperatures you would see at the, right at the beginning of the summer or at the end of the summer. And it just feels like a continuation of the summer rather than the autumn itself. And is this all feeding into the energy crisis as well, Guy? I mean, are people still having to run their air cons right into October, the end of October? Well, I mean, it depends where you are. Certainly in the south of the country, um, last month in October, you know, there, we, the south of the country is known for having, you know, higher temperatures than the rest of the country. So down in Andalusia, the Guadalquivir Valley, which is one of the hottest places in, in Spain, you know, they were seeing temperatures up in the high, in the, in the mid-30s in October. That's extremely unusual, even for that part of Spain. Guy Hitchko in Madrid there. Then Philip spoke to Petiri Talas. Pateri Talas, Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization. 28 degrees in San Sebastian at the end of October at half past six in the morning. Is this the new normal or is there just something very strange about 2022 that is making it an outlier from previous or other years? So 2020, we have seen several extremes. Uh, uh, the summer was very, very uh, warm and uh, dry in whole Europe, uh, the same happened in China. It was also heat wave there and uh, drought, and also especially in western part of the United States, whereas we had this uh, severe flooding event uh, taking place in, in Pakistan. So this has been quite unusual year, and uh, we have started seeing the impacts of climate change uh, more, more and more often because of the, of the warming and, uh, but of course, we shouldn't explain all of these uh, variations with climate change. Uh, there's always a climate change component embedded in the normal variations. And I have been using analogy to sports. Uh, the athletes, they are high-performing individuals. And uh, if you give them doping, they, they, they perform even with the higher intensity. And we have been doping the atmosphere with uh, specific carbon dioxide. And that's why we have started seeing more often these uh, extremes. And actually, we will publish a report uh, uh, on uh, status of climate uh, in Europe uh, tomorrow, together with the European Union, where we, we are demonstrating that, uh, that uh, the warming in Europe has been double as compared to the glo- global global average, about half decrease per, per, per decade during the past uh, So there is no reason to assume that 2023 or 2024 are going to be any less unsettled than 2022 has been? So so gradually we are moving towards warmer and warmer temperatures and and this negative trend in weather will continue until 2060s, independent of our success in in climate uh, mitigation. But uh, then we could see a phase out. And we have already lost... uh, uh, glacier melting and sea level rise game. So this uh, is supposed to continue for the coming 
hundreds of years because only high concentration of, uh, of carbon dioxide. But the negative trend in weather patterns, uh, uh, drought, uh, flooding, storms, uh, heat waves, uh, that's something that we could seize in 2060s if we are successful in climate mitigation. John Sweeney, 2022 was anticipated to be a La Nina year. We could reasonably have anticipated a cold winter with easterlies across Europe, high pressure, you know, maybe perhaps like 2010 uh, all over again. Do you think that things are just now too unpredictable to be making forecasts like that? Well, I think it's unusual that we've had three La Nina years in a row and uh, we're certainly overdue. Um, a La, uh, El Nino year, which would certainly have made matters a great deal worse in terms of temperature this year. I think we have to recognise that we are, as, as the previous speakers have said, uh, paying the price of climate change. I mean, in Ireland, uh, for example, um, this October, it was warmer in many parts of Ireland than it was in May. Um, now, that's quite unusual. Um, in fact, in, in the southwest, it was only a half a degree cooler than it was in June. Um, so, you know, we're looking at quite exceptional changes taking place. And, and this Indian summer that we're enjoying uh, is certainly characteristic of what we would expect to see. It's, a, you know, September in particular, um, and, and part of the price we pay in Ireland for climate change is wetter conditions in the autumn and winter. September gave us more rain, for example, than May, June and July combined. So, you know, it, it comes because we're an oceanic country. We're getting the warmth from the Azores that many parts of Europe are getting, but we're also getting the, the moist airflow, which is giving us the, the rainfall we've seen. And over the past few weeks, I think there's another thing which is coming into play, and that is that the jet stream is very much almost locked in position, giving us a, a steady flow of air from the south and southwest, bringing up these repeated heavy rainfall events, although bringing with them the mild conditions. And we're seeing in Ireland, for example, this autumn, strange things happening to our, to our landscape, uh, to our vegetation. Um, we saw uh, what was called a false autumn, for example, occurring where um, because of the drought earlier in the year, plants started taking protective action for themselves. So blackberries began ripening in July and August. Uh, uh, even be berries were forming on holly much earlier than usual. And we're seeing at the moment, if you look out your windows, you, you'll probably see quite a strange contrast in some trees having turned yellow, other trees being as green as they were almost during the summer months. And in some cases, these are responses to the stress of the droughts that we had earlier in the year. So trees like beech, for example, are turning. But if you look at the oak trees, they're almost as green as they were uh, two months mm, ago. So mm. we're seeing these kinds of vegetative changes where the seasons are getting out of kilter. And with that, of course, let's remember animal life is also affected. Insect life is also affected. The food supply for our birds are also affected. So uh, although we love these warm autumn days, uh, they come at a cost and they come at, at a, if you like, at a cost of changing some of the things we take for granted in our biodiversity as well. John Sweeney from Today with Philip Boucher-Hayes.
And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, the National Circus Festival begins this week. So Ryan was talking modern day clowns, jossers and circus life with Con Horgan from his company Fanzini's. Uh, Fanzini's is a is a circus and street arts company uh, that we started in 1997. Myself and two very good friends uh, began life on the streets, uh, performing mostly comedy with sprinklings of circus skills. Okay, how do you get into the world of circus in the sense that, from my understanding, a lot of people are born into it, and it's families and it's you know Duffy's and Fossets and so on. You you don't come from, from from a circus background, do you? I am what's known as a josser. Now, this is a word I'd never heard until this morning. <laughs> so spell it first. It's J-O-S-S-E-R. Like a dosser with a J. Exactly. And yeah. what is a josser? A josser is somebody who's not born into circus, like who comes to it later in life. Oh, because you're like a muggle. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So so a josser is, is that, well, that explains what it is. But how did you become a josser then? So uh, I, I and a lot of people in Ireland find their way into the into, into circus through my, my through my own case, which was in university. I was in UCG. Uh, I was studying there. I was studying marine science and uh, two very good friends of mine had some juggling balls and they were like, how, how does this work? And I said, well, I don't know. And I had a go on course then immediately was hooked. And there are like kind of circus societies and juggling societies in many of the colleges even now. Yes, you were doing marine science. I was doing marine what science. What year were you yeah. in? I was in third year actually when I got into it. Of a how many year course? Of a four year course. So I was twenty one. So I came to it like young. really late. Yeah. And were you enjoying? Sorry, you came to the. Yeah. Sorry, you went to college young, but circus <laughs> came late. to circus late exactly. Uh, and were you enjoying marine science? I loved it. I, I totally loved it. I was I was fortunate enough to be kind of good at academia as well. And, yeah. Um, so it it was really fulfilling, you know. And and I remember doing my my fourth year project. And uh, the, which was actually published by the by the college, which was really unusual okay. because I actually managed to discover something. Tell like, us, what did you discover? <laughs> well, normally in science, you disprove things. Yeah. You know, you say that this isn't actually the case. But in my case, I actually managed to prove that something was happening. Now, I, I won't go into the into the, the details. Can of you it. give me the ladybird guide to what the hell you discovered? And you're talking to somebody who doesn't understand a lot. Yes. Yes. So I'm going to I'm going to initially turn you off because okay. I'm going to give you what the title was, which was uh, Latitudinal Ecotypes in Gelidium Facilium. You've lost me, but, I, but, I, but and yet you've, you've got me still because I'm going, OK, now. If you but, can describe that in a few words, I'd be even more impressed. And that's uh, before we get to a juggling ball. So Yes, so um, it, it was a seaweed and we took four seaweeds from four different latitudes, one in Norway, one in Galway, one in Bilbao and one in the Canary Islands. I'm fully with you now. And we were trying to figure out if there was a difference in them, Wow! right, depending on where they were from. Yeah. And I actually managed to prove that there was. That there was a significant difference or? Significant enough. Yeah. Yeah. And fair play to my professor. He was no fool. He got four uh, postgraduate um, PhD students to actually check it before they published it. So I did actually find something out. God, so he checked with his sources like a good yeah. journalist. Uh, <laughs> yeah. OK, wonderful. So that was a great achievement. And that got published. And, and yet part of me is still with your two pals with the juggling balls. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, it's, like they're, it's like they're almost distracting you from your <laughs> academic endeavour. So what, what do these guys do and, and how do they draw you into their world? I guess the thing is, um, I guess what I was looking for really at the end of this um, journey of academia, because, you know, like all kids, you go to school and you almost leave immediately and go into, into university, mm. you know, if you're lucky enough. Mm. And so it's years and years and years. I was 22 when I finished. And all I had known to that point was books and exams. And I was just 
looking for something else, yeah. you know, without realising it, actually. I was looking for an adventure and I didn't know what that was going to be. And I certainly didn't have a plan or like a, a, a strategy or anything like that. It, it's just something that I fell into, you know. And I remember leaving and I remember one day I went around to this the zoology park cause, uh, of the of the the building mm-hmm. and there was a friend of mine there and her research was getting a badger poo and opening it up and to see what the badger had eaten and this is something she did for an entire year and I remember looking <laughs> at her going is this my life? <laughs> and Ryan asked Con about the scary clowns like Stephen King's It and the fear of clowns. So it's, it's a real thing. It's, clauro- it? it's claurophobia. Claurophobia, yeah, it's, okay. It's a real thing. And I mean, I'm a clown and I'm scared of those guys. You know, so <laughs> Which guys are you pointing at? The, of the horror the, show? The horror show guys. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why it is. I mean, clown and circus is so in our world. It's It's... It's like I often describe it as it's the, the it, it feels like an old friend, you know, mm. clown and, and circus particularly. And we've such a long history of it here in Ireland. And I think maybe that it's just in, in, the, in the public psyche, you know, but I think as well. And it was a decision that we made, Fanzini's, when we started out to not use face paint, you know. Oh, you don't have any. No, we, we, we don't have any face paint. We didn't go that route because for, for me, and this is just speaking personally, it was really like a barrier between us and the audience. And I did want that I wanted I wanted people to see our faces you know that it wasn't like a and it can definitely work you know they say that the clown nose is the smallest mask in the world you know yeah um, but I, th- I think the thing about about circus being like an old friend is, is a really interesting thing mm-hmm. because and I think I think programmers are copping onto it now as well especially in arts festivals and especially in the world of, of programming they're realising that um, that people really identify with circus they know what it is you know Whereas maybe some other art forms like contemporary dance or visual arts are a little bit maybe for people, you know, the arty crowd, the art yes. set, you know, whereas circus is something, oh, I know what that is. I can relate to that. Con Horgan from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time. <laughs>